My name is Carolina Flores, and I'm the resident philosopher today. Um, this is Talk Pop C, and our topic is art as cognition. And I'm speaking with Ian Olasov. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. So Ian has also been a resident philosopher for us. Um, so this is a little bit of a different conversation. And the topic we want to focus on today is a little more specific than art as cognition. We're interested in narratives. And we're especially interested in narratives and their political and social role. Do you want to take it over, Ian? Yeah, I guess we had started the conversation a little bit like uh, off off mic, off tape a, a minute ago. And I guess we were both riffing on the idea that the stories we tell about the present and the stories that we tell about our own past in like lefty political spaces are sort of overwhelmingly negative and that that that's that's bad for reasons why I guess we should explore <laughs> yes but then like and and that and that it's but I guess a couple of a couple of very sort of broad or vague sort of dimensions of badness that already came out in the conversation were like there's there's something you miss if you only have a negative story to tell about sort of the past of the groups that you belong to. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's important that's missing if you only have a negative story to tell about sort of the current political scene. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I guess, what are the questions to ask here? I guess... What are the dimensions of, of badness is one. Another yeah. one is what makes for a positive narrative. Uh -huh. And I think another one also is... This is just something that's close to my wheelhouse, but what's the role of specifically of like identities and the thinking of like our own past as a group? Because, well, we all, there's many groups we could identify with, but often things like nationality or ethnic groups have this kind of very historical dimension where mm -hmm. they seem to be tied up with a particular historical narrative where for many people, we want to feel proud in these, in these groups. And the challenge when people enter left-wing spaces can be that it's overwhelmingly negative yeah the sense of history that you get yeah i i i mean i'm free associating but i'll just throw it out there because this is a sort of a point of contact with my own like personal experience i guess mm -hmm. it's like when i was a teenager i was i was religious for about for about three months what I, religion I, I was, how I was, did this happen i, I, I was like raised <laughs> i was like raised as a reform jew which is it's sort of very non-committal theologically, right? It's sort of just like, oh, you show up to synagogue and you do Passover and Hanukkah or whatever, but there's, you know, there's no, there are no beliefs necessarily that come along with it. But then at some point I, you know, actually shortly after starting, you know, studying philosophy, I was like, okay, no, I believe in God and I'm going to be a religious That is unusual for... to become religious <laughs> following beginning to study philosophy. It was, it was, <laughs> I, it was, I think I had, a. I had my early exposure to philosophy was from uh, like a, germ, a a guy whose background my old professor Bruce Matthews who's who's great um, who's a German idealism guy and I guess the vision that I got from philosophy there was sort of um, what you might call metaphysically inflationary there was just sort of like oh <laughs> philosophy gives you access to this sort of like world of unseen objects that you you know the thing in itself and god and that is an yeah. unusual beginning also for <laughs> philosophy i feel more often you get a deflationary you know we don't have access to anything after all <laughs> vision <laughs> yeah but that was but that was part of the romance and the appeal of it and 
but in the but but as far the connection to identity at least is that like is that like okay once the once the metaphysical stuff sort of opened the door to you know some belief in god belief in god and and so some sort of religious practice um then I remember like watching like documentaries about like Jewish life on the shtetl, like Eastern European Jewish life and feeling like just having this like visceral reaction of like, oh, those are my people. Like that's where my... And you hadn't before when watching similar... I really hadn't. Yeah. I really hadn't. Yeah. So the way in which we relate to our images and narratives is heavily mediated by who we choose, we identify with. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. yeah. And so one might think that politically then it matters like who the audience is for our narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same narrative is going to have a very different impact in people who like partake a particular identity in that history. So you might think in histories of colonialism, some of what we were also talking about uh-huh. um, off tape, you might think that the impact on white people who see themselves as the descendants of colonizers, which you know they are, is going to be very different from the impact on people who are descendants of the colonized. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you... you and the people who are just sort of, I guess, because of the way that power is still distributed in, you know, inside of the states of former colonial powers. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be it's going to be the colonizers who are creating the media, who are telling <laughs> who are telling the stories for them, for the most part. I mean, you know, we have in in the U.S. periodically you have. Yeah, we have subcultures and you every now and again you hear from like. You're from Filipino people talking about the invasion of the Philippines, or you hear from um, Puerto Rican nationalists. Or, relatively rarely in the U.S. Yeah. media, but you do, but you do sometimes. Yeah. So, so maybe one upshot for right now is just that it's good if we have narratives that at least reflect marginalized perspectives, but that doesn't get us to the point we wanted, which was, um, you know, let's think about white people in America. If they are come to see things sort of accurately, um, that will involve seeing themselves as sort of the bad guys, yeah. the colonizers. And um, though that is accurate, it also might seem just like profoundly discouraging in a way that like makes people not accept those narratives. And then, you know, in not accepting those narratives, not be able to sort of correct for historical injustice. So it seems we have a puzzle because we want accurate historical narratives, but we also want those narratives to be able to make um, people who are the descendants of the bad guys feel, you know, um, empowered to act in ways that promote justice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, you know, one, one possibility is that like, yeah, as you noted, you know, everybody's a member of a lot of groups. And, you know, when you talk about your identity in the sense of, you know, what sort of which groups are core to your conception of who you are, um, well, some of those groups are going to have, you know, pretty, you know, noxious histories, just histories, histories which are hard to, you know, put in a rosy light. But other groups are not, you know, so like, yeah, I'm a I'm a, a a white guy who grew up in a pretty wealthy family, you know, upper middle class. My dad's a lawyer, that kind of thing. Grew up in Park Slope, you know. So you know the history of my family. If you tell it in that way, oh yeah, okay. Well, it's the history. Ian's the Ameri- a terrible guy. It's the history of the American <laughs> American bourgeoisie, and oh god, oh it's just oh. like yeah, it's like yeah. I'm, <laughs> I just threw up in my mouth and, but uh, you know, I mean, I love my grandparents and so on, but I like, but like the, um, um, but the, uh, 
you know, but like, I'm in a union. I'm a member of the labor movement. Yeah. So you can take so up like, new, yeah. thanks for <laughs> yeah, yeah. wrapping my work, Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you can take up new, more positive identities. So that's one part um, of it. But I think we still need to leave space for like a real recognition of the ways in which our mm. people have done bad things, but where that's maybe just like, maybe part of it is about not um, essentializing that. And I can see drawing on other identities as a resource being like, I recognize that I have this identity that my people in that sense did terrible things, but I also see as part of my history, some other much more positive stuff that I can take up as who I want to be going forward. Yeah. And I, I like the, I, I mean, I think you maybe, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. You tell me yeah. if I am, but like, I, I think you made the suggestion that like, you know, part of how you, you know, think of some group identity is yeah, surely the, the the past of the group, the history of the group, but you can also sort of imagine some some future for the group. Yes, <laughs> and so like you know, so it's yeah, right. That that could be what that could be what constitutes the yes. identity. So it's, you know, so you know, people who are you know who I could imagine, I could imagine you know, little baby Friedrich Engels, you know, sitting in his dad's factory, thinking like. Yeah, yeah. And thinking like, uh, well, not not baby Friedrich Engels, but twenty something Friedrich <laughs> Engels, thinking like, okay, you know, like, well, you know, my fam, my fam, my family are these, you know, these, you know, you know, capitalist pigs, and they've, you know, they've oppressed all these people, and so on and so forth. But like, there's the bright shining future of, yeah. you know, of of uh, global communism, and the, so you know, so I, so yeah. my family can contribute to that. Yeah, I don't know. This is, is that, a good. Yeah. I like it. The, the thought of, you know, shifting from seeing, um, from thinking of group identities as about our past and thinking about our future. So maybe union identities are often a little bit like that because they're focused on goals that we want to achieve. And I think in some ways, so are often like other progressive identities. I think of queer identities as often being more tied up with a vision for the future and the way in which we can relate to one another that's, you know, different from the current one. Uh-huh. Um, and not so deeply tied up to a shared history um you know to some extent it is but there's a different and same for union identities to some extent they are tied up with the history but there's a more future-oriented um aspect to them another part of what you're suggesting that i find interesting is um well it suggests that we should have more of a role for kind of utopian narratives uh-huh. and sort of thinking about you know best case scenarios in a way that's not super constrained by our starting point or practical feasibility and one reason why that's interesting is because i think that um conservative and mainstream social movements often use the past in a utopian way the utopias that they think about they imagine to be in the past so maybe a tool for the left is you know yeah we recognize the past was pretty bad but we locate our utopias in the future so we have a utopia with which to fight these you know visions of like you know um purely white um america where everyone was well off and you know the kinds of fantasies that people partake in yeah yeah i like that i was just i i was just reading um the book freedom dreams robin dg kelly's book from 20 years ago which again we were talking about briefly off mike a minute ago and he makes this point that like yeah that like um especially in like early 20th century you know black nationalist movements there were there there were these what we can now recognize as utopian descriptions of um 
traditional African life where it's like, oh yeah. in you know, in Africa before colonialism, like all property was held in common and there was no hierarchy and women were treated exactly the same as men. It's like, oh, uh, actually there was actually, actually that's not true. (laughs) But like, um, but it, to some extent, and you know, you do need, you do need to actually correct the historical record at some point you need to say, well, you know, there, there, yeah, there are, for example, histories of slavery inside of, you know, pre-colonial Africa, but like, um, but the more interesting positive point is like, yeah, right. Like you're saying the, the, um, utopian vision of the past is a a sort of utopian vision of the future in disguise. Yes. Um, maybe that is true also in general of utopian visions of the past when people, you know, when people on the right are, um, you know, employing a utopian vision of, you know, 1950s America, Uh that is a way of envisaging what they hope the future will look like. Uh Um, yeah. And to the extent that I think there's a tendency on the left to look to the past with horror. There's also a tendency to maybe project that into the future. So maybe there's this, maybe there's a robust psychological tendency to sort of like construct a narrative of what the past was like and for that to determine your sense of what possibilities are for the future. Yeah. And I guess, you know, maybe there's a sort of, you know, boring terminological question, which this ultimately (laughs) turns on, but I'll throw, I'll throw this out there. I mean, I think, some of the sort of positive you know discourse that i want that i that 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 i want to see more of in the world is narrative in form and about identity in some sense but some of it isn't so like yeah. i think like like um i'm a big fan of um the people's policy project this this little lefty think tank which was sort of just i think i i think largely just a name for matt brunig when he the the commentator when he just like puts on his think tank hat rather than just you know tweeting or <laughs> what whatever. do they do they they make all of these policy proposals nice. and um uh and some of it is very you know real politic it's like okay well in the mm-hmm. you know this future, is in the, this yeah is in the near future do. this is in the you know zone of proximal development or something for the united states but like some of it is some of it is, if not utopian, you know, sort of middle term future type stuff. So, you know, um, for example, like plans for um, using something like index funds to um, buy up large swaths of the American economy, for example, mm-hmm. um, without like violently intervening or like, you know, murdering the kulaks or something. Um, um, and that, I, so I don't think, I think of that as important, positive stuff that we need to talk about, but it's not narrative in form. I don't think yeah. it's not, it's not about storytelling. It's about policy. Yeah. But I guess, so that is not very motivating for building social movements. It's super politically important, but it's a different role. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Although, yeah, I guess there's, you know, I'm I, I'm always inclined to think that like maybe this is self-aggrandizing, like being a professional philosopher. But I'm always inclined to think that like okay, well, movements sort of unfold on different fronts, right? Yes. And so you know, when people wonder about like what role do philosophers have to play in social movements, it's like well, you know, one of those fronts is going to be like a theoretical thing, or it's going to Absolutely. or it's going to take place in these 
sort of rarefied spaces that philosophers have access to that other people don't or whatever. Um, so maybe you could say, maybe you could say s similar things about sort of policy mm -hmm. proposals, Absolutely, yeah. but yeah, well, I guess then. So you're saying, yeah, okay, okay yeah. just to recap. So, sure. um, we had, okay. Ian wants to see more, um, narratives that are positive, but identity centered. And we're trying to figure out what shape those would have, but then also we need, you know, philosophical theorizing and detailed, concrete, close, you know, near future policy proposals. That's right. We yeah. need all these different fronts, but let's maybe turn back to narrative. Okay. Okay. I think yeah, one yeah. interesting aspect of what you said that I think is maybe somewhat controversial is the idea that these narratives should remain identity focused. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some moves towards saying, you know, there's too much of a focus on identity and we should move away from that. But yeah, you think identity is important. Do you want to say some more about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree, but I mean, I, I, I do, but I also, I also do think that it, it, it does receive too much too much focus, yeah. at least, at, at least in certain sorts of organizing spaces. Um, I think so. Like one way that I think identity gets focused that it shouldn't have, or one manifestation of an excessive focus on identity, I think, is the way that um, what we call in the biz standpoint epistemology, this idea from philosophy has sort of been taken up in public life. Yes. I so think, yeah, sorry. Go you ahead. want to recap what the basics are? <laughs> sure. I mean, the basic idea is that, is that people who are members of oppressed identity groups have just, just in virtue of their membership in the group have some kind of special knowledge or mm -hmm. expertise or sometimes it gets vaguer than that, yeah. you know. So, but, they should but, be the ones talking, and other people should shut up. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, I think um, there are a lot. That's a that's a sort of a broad family of view. But I think the way that that idea, which was born in sort of feminist philosophy and feminist thinking in the seventies, I think largely, mm -hmm. although they're precursors from you know Du Bois on double consciousness or whatever, like. I think the way that that view gets metabolized in like social media is like, mm -hmm. is like, uh, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a white, white person, don't talk about race. If you're a man, don't talk, yeah. don't talk about reproductive yeah. justice. And it's like, mm, you're not that doing anybody, anybody's problem. any favors. Yeah. yeah. So that is compatible with focusing, rejecting that idea. So obviously just want to note that's compatible with still having narratives that are focused on identity, but that simply don't tell people they should, you know, shut up and recognize that, you know, whenever there's a lot of, we can understand a lot of social problems as having an identity dimension to the extent that being part of a, some group that's oppressed and some group that's privileged or identities, but everyone has a perspective on that. And also everyone stands to learn by discussing it. Yeah. And therefore we need discussion spaces that allow for a wide range of, of voices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, another reason why that idea might be wrong is just that if we have bad narratives circulating, people of all sorts of groups will have um, absorbed them and therefore might not have a special form of privilege at that very moment, even if they could develop it. Yeah, um, yeah, there's, there's, there, you know, what what we sometimes call false consciousness, which is an idea which is it's sort of rude to accuse people of false consciousness for good reason. But it happens. But, but it happens. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, the idea that, you know, some, some, sometimes, you know, you end up, 
you know, members of the working class or members of oppressed identity groups sort of end up taking on ideas that somehow work to their own disadvantage, but precisely because they're oppressed, those are the ideas which are sort of widely in circulation. And I think false consciousness is, I mean, there are different ways of thinking about false consciousness, but that's how I think of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I I think it's real. I, I think it's, so, you know, but, but I think also, I mean, I would say even, even apart from false consciousness, I would say that there are, you know, there are, you know, if somebody is, if somebody is, uh, you know, say that, sure, say that you're Engels, say that you're Friedrich Engels and you've wrote, you know, <laughs> whatever, the working class in, in Britain or whatever, you know, you've written, you've done all this sociological work on working class people yes. in Britain. You've done a lot of empirical work. You've read zillions of words about this stuff. This is what your whole life is about, but you are not yourself a member of the working class. Yeah. Like, um, we should take your work seriously. Should, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You might know more about the working class in Britain than working class people in Britain, than the average working class person. They in might Britain. know some other things about their day to day life, but yeah. that is different. Yeah. yeah. So we are needing to wrap up. So let's sure. try to get on some of the main threads. I feel there's so much here that I want to remember. Yeah. Um, so I think, one idea that stuck to me in this conversation was um, it's important for our narratives to still, you know, consider identity. Maybe that is just because it is such a fact of modern life that it's been shaped around these different social groups. So we need to not lose sight of that. Another idea, I think, um, was the idea that we can um, look to the future, more to the past than to the past and construct our identities in a positive political way around projects for what we want the world to look like explicitly instead of around like who our ancestors were and trying to feel good about our ancestors, which is often, you know, just not possible without radically misjudging the moral facts. Um, I think that to be two of the like main ideas we looked at. Oh, another idea was the idea that um, we're going to need narratives, but also a lot more mm -hmm. in social movements. We'll also need theorizing and concrete policy. So it's all hands on board. Do you want to <laughs> add in? Yeah, I mean, that that's a really great summary of that. I think the main threads of the conversation, I guess, I guess I'd add that um, while there are healthy ways of, uh, attending to and making space for discussion of identity. There are ways in which these things can go off the rails. I think, you know, some of, you know, versions of, of standpoint epistemology, at least, uh, as taken up do, in social media, as taken up on social media. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So yeah, the way that, yeah, the way that they're metabolized in general life or in public life or whatever, they're, they're, they're not productive and, you know, um, uh, you know, there, yeah, there are various, there are various ways in which, in which identity talk can sort of go off the rails or become divisive or, or reactionary or something. But, um, uh, but the mere fact that there are some such ways that this talk can go off the rails doesn't mean that like, you've, you've got it, you've got to be some, you, 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 you have, you, you have to only focus on policy or be completely race blind or something like that. Like that's not, that's not the ideal. Yeah. Great. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Ian. Yeah. Thank you. This is great.